0: All right, thank you very much, I appreciate this. Thanks to Anna, to everybody here. All right, so I shall lay out and defend a platonic explanation of non-modal and modal truths using forms as their truth makers. Further, I shall argue that this platonic theory is parsimonious, naturalistic, and ontologically serious. These features should commend the view to a wide swath of philosophers and non-philosophers, even non-philosophers. All right, suppose that I am sitting. Just suppose. (laughs) It's a good thing you didn't have a podium, okay. What makes it true that I could be standing? On the other hand, what makes it true that I could not be flying? Since I am sitting, it is true, it is not true either that I am standing or that I am flying. Nevertheless, it does seem to be true that I could be standing. Anyone else uh, oh, on the I way? Like Simona. Simona, okay. Um Scott, do your mind? I can wait. One second, sorry. Just uh, go on. Uh? Push on. Yeah, there's nobody lost in the quad, so... Okay. Sorry. All right, so uh, it does seem to be true that I could be standing further. It does seem to be true that I could not be flying. In the Theaetetus and the Sophist, Plato gives us what I think is an extremely plausible and detailed theory concerning the metaphysical bases of the non-modal truths and falsehoods. For example, that I am sitting and that I am flying, respectively, as well as their truth-makers. However, he does not explicitly discuss at length the metaphysical bases of a certain class of modal truths, for example, that I could be standing and that I could not be flying, though he does give us, I shall argue, their truth makers. Let us start with an, a non-modal truth. Consider for example the following truth. Scott is sitting. That's number one. What is one? The orthodox view of theorists working on issues having to do with truth makers today assumes that propositions are the things which bear truth or falsity. Propositions are what are made true or false either by having or lacking truth makers. According to this orthodox view then, one is a proposition. The truth of one is not part of its identity except accidentally. So one is the same thing regardless of whether it is true or false. And if one is true, then again according to this orthodox view, actual facts, i.e. actual states of affairs, make one true. On this theory, the non-modal truths are propositions and the truth makers are the states of the world which happen to make those propositions true. Knowing the truths then is knowing the propositions which happen to be true. Since I have been convinced that there are no such things as propositions, i.e. things which maintain their identity regardless of whether they are true or false, I cannot accept propositions as what the truths are. In their place, I will take the non-modal truth one to be not something different than the spatio-temporal Scott sitting, but identical to it. The truths are the things that constitute reality. And what are those things? As a Platonist, I think that so I am a Platonist. Just play my cards. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> you know where I'm coming from. As a Platonist, I think that reality is constituted completely by the spatio-temporal and non-spatio-temporal things there are. Those things are all the things there are. So the spatio-temporal and non-spatio-temporal things will have to be the truths, and moreover, they will have to be the truth-makers truth on this view explain why the truths are true. Now consider the following question, Q, why is one a truth? That is what makes one a truth? Q is question why is it a truth, what makes it true is ambiguous between two different why questions. Q could be asking, Q1, why did Scott come to be sitting? Or Q could be asking, Q2, why identify Scott's behavior as sitting? This is parallel to the following, suppose it's true that 1 star, a region of this lung is cancerous. If we ask Q star, why is 1 star a truth, that is what makes 1 star a truth, we could be asking either Q1 star, why did a region of this lung come to be cancerous, or we could be asking Q2 star, why identify a region of this lung as cancerous. Q1 and Q1 star are asking for the causal mechanical explanation of a particular truth. What made this truth come to be? So why is it true? What made it come to be is what, why it's true. Q2 and Q2 star, on the other hand, are asking something different. Namely, they're asking about the identity of a particular truth. That is, they're asking for an explanation of the nature of a particular truth. So instead of asking for an explanation of how this truth came to be, the second kind of why question is asking for an explanation of what this truth is. The answers to these two different kinds of why questions then get us two different kinds of truth makers. The causal mechanical truth makers for any truth that came to be, on the one hand, necessarily include spatio-temporal entities. For example, a partial answer to Q1 star could be, because A1 star, the person smoked cigarettes for 40 years. This explanation refers to a spatio-temporal entity, namely the 40-year spatiotemporally extended smoking person system. That entity, i.e. that spatiotemporal system, could be part of why the truth one star came to be. But of course one star could have come to be without A1 star being part of the causal mechanical explanation. Instead, one star could have come to be partially because A1 double star, the person was exposed to high levels of ionizing radiation. This explanation also refers to a spatiotemporal entity, namely the spatiotemporally extended exposure to ionizing radiation system. Probably much more narrow. Either entity could be part of the complete causal mechanical truth maker for one star, which includes every entity required to explain why one star came to be. The first important point to notice here is that though one star had many historical antecedents, only some of them explain why one star came to be. In fact, most of the historical antecedents of 1 star are irrelevant to explaining why it came to be. For example, A1 double star may not be part of that explanation even if it was antecedent to 1 star. Not every high-level dose of ionizing radiation causes cancer. Likewise with A1 star. Smoking even for a period of 40 years does not cause cancer every time. And A fortiori for all of the historical antecedents that never cause cancer. The second point is that in order to identify those causal mechanical truth makers correctly, there have to be truth makers of a different sort, namely identity truth makers. This is so because the historical period before any spatiotemporal truth such as one star is dimensionally complex. Given the nature of that complexity, there have to be scale relative parameters which determine what spatiotemporal things there are. These n-dimensional scale-relative parameters are the non-spatio-temporal things that in turn are the nature, i.e., identity, of the spatio-temporal things. And to the extent we know these non-spatio-temporal things, to that extent we know what the spatio-temporal things are. Therefore, knowing the identity truth-makers is a prerequisite for knowing which of these spatio-temporal things are the causal-mechanical truth-makers and which are not. In simpler terms, in order to identify correctly which parts of a historical period are the cause of mechanical truth makers and which parts of that historical period are not, first, the parts must be different from each other, and second, the parts must be epistemologically differentiable in virtue of that ontological difference. Let us examine each of these requirements further. First the ontological difference. If A1 star and A1 double star are in fact different, what makes it true that they are different? Since it is arguable that the best science of our day, sorry, since it is ar- it's arguable that the best science of our day all but rules out Aristotelian substantialism and all of its neo-scholastic descendants in contemporary analytic metaphysics, arguable, it has to be argued, there isn't anything in A1 star or A1 double star themselves that make them essentially different from each other as they are both fundamentally, i.e. essentially the same thing, namely energy. In other words, the closest we can come to identifying any spatiotemporal thing absolutely, independent of scale, is that it is energy. What makes any spatiotemporal thing different from any other spatiotemporal thing is how the energy in those regions of space time is structured. As the physicist might put it, matter is a form of energy. Now, since the space time regions for A1 star and A1 double star could overlap or even be identical, If A1 star and A1 double star are to be truly different from each other, the structures which differentiate A1 star from A1 double star have to be determined by parameters that are scale-relative. Take for example, the region of space-time that is my temporal part and that is currently sitting. There are about seven billion 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 and one things here, if you're pointing here. namely roughly seven billion 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 atoms and one human being. The explanation for there really being both roughly seven billion 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 atoms and one human being at this same region of space-time requires that thinghood be understood using the scientific notion of scale relativity. Each objective kind of thing there is is relative to parameters at different scales. So there are 7 billion, billion, billion atoms at this region of space-time relative to the parameters at the Angstrom length scale and there is one human being at the same region of space-time relative to the parameters at the meter length scale. The kind of thing human beings are is such that humans don't exist at the Angstrom length scale. And the kind of thing atoms are is such that they don't exist at the meter length scale. All seven billion, 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 and one things are located at the same region of space-time, and so at the same level of reality, but relative to different length scales. Since the Platonic theory concerning what it is to be a space temporal thing is not understood as absolute, i.e. in terms of what is fundamental, then a Platonist will not have to say what they're really... Uh, say that really what there is here are atoms or really what there is here is subatomic particles and that the human being is merely derivative and not really what exists. The platonic theory is not committed to there being a fundamental level of spatiotemporal things, the building blocks as it were, from which all of the other things are built. All of the spatiotemporal things are really what exists and none of them are more fundamental than any of the others. This can be so, I submit, if spatiotemporal thinghood is understood in terms of objective scale relative parameters. So if the causal, mechanically relevant parts of the historical period before one star have to be different from the causal, mechanically irrelevant parts in order for us to differentiate them from each other correctly, and there have to be identity truth makers which make these parts truly different. Then, to the extent that these identity truth makers are known, then to that extent we can successfully identify those causal mechanical truth makers. The ultimate aim of science, then, is knowledge of those identity truth makers, which Plato calls forms. Now, to get back, so that's why I find it a bit bizarre that people claim that Plato was anti scientific when his whole idea is to argue <laughs> that science is possible only if there are forms. That was the main thrust of his entire metaphysics. Okay, so if the causal, uh, let's see, did that already, All right. now to get back to my original question, if we ask the identity why question, Q2, that is why is sitting the thing Scott is doing, we want to know what makes it true that sitting is what Scott is doing, not what caused it. The Platonist answer to Q2 then is that it is true that Scott is sitting because A2, The nature of sitting, i.e. having one's weight supported on a surface with one's torso upright, correctly characterizes or is true of this region of space-time. The Platonist answer to Q2 star is that 1 star is true, there's cancer in this uh, region of the lung, because A2 star, the nature of cancer, i.e. uncontrollable cell growth, correctly characterizes or is true of this region of space-time. The natures of sitting in cancer, i.e. the forms of sitting in cancer, unlike my sitting in this cancerous tumor, are non-spatio-temporal entities. Clearly the identity truth-making relation between a non-spatio-temporal entity and a region of space-time is different than the causal mechanical truth-making relation between two spatio-temporal entities. I will not say anything about the causal mechanical truth-making relation today, but I do want to examine the identity truth-making relation. Take as a simple example of the identity truth-making relation the relation between parabolas and a particular parabola. Suppose that at the micrometer length scale there are graphite crystallites on a Cartesian plane in Euclidean space, such that at the decimeter length scale they conform to the algebraic equation y equals x squared. Then the thing at the decimeter length scale is a parabola. The graphite crystallites at the micrometer length scale are not parabolas because y equals x squared is not true of their structure which is in fact hexagonal. And it is also the case that the sum of those graphite crystallites is not a parabola. The sum of those graphite crystallites is just a multitude of crystallites. In order for the plurality of crystallites to be one parabola instead of merely one multitude of crystallites, the parameters by which we measure have to be at different scales. The parabola exists at a larger scale than the scale at which its points exist. Since the crystallites and the parabola all exist at the same level of reality, as they are all in that same region of space time together, there is no question about what ultimately or fundamentally exists at that region of space time. They all exist, really. And, but they exist at different length scales. So far, so good. But what is the relation between parabolinus and the parabola? The algebraic equation for parabolinus expresses a functional dependence of different kinds of magnitudes, for example, the x magnitude and the y magnitude. A particular parabola is an instance, manifestation example, of that functional dependence. The relation between them is the same as the more simple relation between a kind of magnitude and a definite magnitude. The relation between parabolas and a parabola is more complex as it is a relation between a functional dependence of different kinds of magnitudes and some definite combination of scale relative magnitudes. But the relation is the same, just dimensionally more complex. Take a simple example. If the nature of speed, that is the non-spatio-temporal thing, is a functional dependence between different kinds of spatio-temporal magnitudes, delta d over delta t, then a car will be moving at a definite rate of 60 kilometers per hour if its definite scale-relative spatial and temporal magnitudes were in that kind of ratio. The identity truthmaking is, clearly, the notorious participation relation, and it is, in general, the relation between a kind of magnitude and a particular magnitude of that kind. The forms, then, are the identity truthmakers for non modal truths, such as one, Scott is sitting. And unless I say otherwise, when I talk about truthmakers, I will only have in mind identity truthmakers. Before moving on to explain modal truths and their truthmakers, let me say a few things about falsehoods and false makers. First, are there such things? For example, consider two, Scott is standing. This seems to be a falsehood. One, a truth, is just Scott sitting. What would two, a falsehood be? If there are such things as falsehoods, what could we point to as their false makers? As we shall see, Plato does not need to think that there are falsehoods, i.e. false things, and so he does not need to believe in false makers in order to explain them. An indication of this is that his question in the sophist is not, what makes two false? Plato in fact considers this possibility in the aviary passage in the Theotetus, but he rejects it. Instead, his question in the sophist is this, what makes it true that two is false? Paradoxically then, Plato thinks that it is by means of what is true that one explains an apparent falsehood. Just to anticipate a bit, 5 plus 7 is 11, is an apparent falsehood. For 5 plus 7 is 11, a falsehood, to be something, the number 5 plus 7, i.e. 12, would have to be the same thing as the number 11. But the number 12 is not the same thing as the number 11. The number 12, i.e. the number 11, is not anything at all. Can someone, however, falsely think that 5 plus 7 is 11? Yes, but not by having the number 12, i.e. the number 11 in mind, because there is no such thing to have in mind. On the other hand, someone can think Someone can truly think that 5 plus 7 is 12, since there is such a thing as the number 12, which is the same thing as the number 12. And someone can truly think that Scott is sitting. When they do, they have Scott sitting in mind, i.e. they have that truth in mind. They can know what they have in mind, of course, only if they know the nature, i.e. the form of sitting. If they don't know that form, then they won't know what truth they have in mind. But I'm getting ahead of myself. How would Plato explain apparent falsehoods like 2? Scott is standing. Plato has a more robust version of the aptly named error theory mind when it comes to explaining apparent falsehoods. An error theory, in general, is the idea that if the domain of a discourse doesn't exist, then all of the statements made in that discourse are false. A more robust version of this theory goes further and claims that those false statements are actually about something, just something different than what they appear to be about. And it is in virtue of those other things that we explain the apparent falsehoods. So for example, all statements that appear to be about unicorns are false and their falsity false it is explained by way of referring to other things which do exist, say horses and horns. An obvious analogy here would be the missing of a target in archery. If it is possible to miss the target, then we have to be able to explain what missing the target is. In order to explain what missing the target is, we need to refer, Plato would say, to one, the location the arrow in fact landed, i.e. in the grass. Two, being located in the grass is different than being located on the target, and three, the form of archery, i.e. arrows landing on targets. One, two, and three are all trues and together explain what a miss is because the form of archery, given uh, that being located in the grass is different than being located on the target, was not true uh, where the, of where the arrow landed. A miss is neither the successful hitting of something that does not exist, since things that do not exist are nothing at all, nor ontologically the same in kind as the kind of thing hitting a target is. Of course, if the nature of archery is the loosing of arrows regardless of whether or not they hit anything, then a miss would be the same kind of thing as a hit is. But in that case, the failure to loose one's arrow, say, because it falls off the bow, would then be what needs to be explained differently and not the missing of the target. And in that case, Plato would say the arrows falling off the bow would not be ontologically the same in kind as the kind of thing an arrow being loosed is. The nature, i.e. the form of archery, is a functionally interdependent set of scale relative parameters. If that set of functionally interdependent scale relative parameters is changed, then the identity of the things, that is the truths, would be objectively different. Plato, as we know, would think that since the natures of things are non-temporal, the scale relative parameters don't change and can't change. In the sophist, Plato discusses and puts forward a theory concerning the explanation of falsity and not-being. He argues that not-being is not the contrary of being, just something different than being. He then uses that result to explain the nature of falsity, how so? He argues that since every form that is not the form of being is different than the form of being, there must exist a form of difference, heteron, which is true of the relation between each of those forms and the form of being. For example, what makes it true that the form of motion is different than the form of being is that the form of difference correctly characterizes the relation between the form of motion and the form of being. Plato uses this form of difference to explain apparent falsehoods such as two. Let's see how. Suppose Anna at this moment says Scott is standing. According to Plato, Anna is falsely thinking that sitting is identical to standing. How so? Plato thinks that the proper name Scott refers directly, i.e. transparently, to whatever is true of a specific extended contiguous region of space-time. Anna's utterance, whether done inwardly or outwardly, is an attempt at correctly identifying one of those things at that time. Since Scott refers to whatever is true of that space-time region, and since the nature of sitting is what is true of that space-time region, Scott refers, among other things, to the nature of sitting. So when Anna says Scott is standing, she is saying, unbeknownst to her, that the nature of sitting is identical to the nature of standing. Just by substitution. Granted, it doesn't seem that way to her. But according to Plato, that is in fact what she is doing, since Plato treats all utterances as directly referring, that is, as transparent. Anna's state of mind, then, is not an instance of true thinking, because for Anna's state of mind to be an instance of true thinking, she has to be in a direct cognitive relation with the truth. Since the nature of sitting, which is identical to the nature of standing, is not a truth, Anna cannot be truly thinking it. On the other hand, Anna could be falsely thinking that the nature of thinking is identical to the nature of standing. I'm sorry, the nature of sitting is the nature of standing. But since there is no thing which is the nature of sitting, i.e. standing, we can't use it to explain her incoherent state of mind. This is where the form of difference and the more robust error theory I mentioned earlier come in. Anna, when she uttered to, either to herself or others, attempted, given the nature of thinking, which is to get the truth in mind, to get the nature of sitting in mind. However, she got something different with respect to sitting, i.e. sitting in mind. She got the nature of standing in mind. Now, since the nature of difference and not the nature of sameness is true of the relation between the nature of sitting and the nature of standing, when Anna identifies sitting with standing, she errs, i.e. doesn't get the truth in mind. And since she doesn't get the truth in mind, the nature of thinking is not true of her state of mind, i.e. she is falsely thinking. Just as when someone hallucinates a pink elephant in the corner of the room is not truly seeing, but only falsely seeing, Whether Anna is truly thinking or falsely thinking depends upon whether or not she has successfully got the truth in mind or not. And just as we can explain what went wrong in the falsely perceiving cases, for example, the visual representation system malfunctioned due to LSD, say, we can explain what went wrong in the falsely thinking cases also, for example, the cognitive system malfunctioned due to ignorance of the forms. So just as the nature of archery is not true of someone missing the target given that the point of archery is to hit the target and not to miss the target or just to loose arrows whether one hits the target or not, so the nature of thinking is not true of what Ana is doing given that the point of thinking is to get the truth as it is, i.e. as identical to itself and not to get the truth as it is not, i.e. as different from itself or it's also, true thinking is also not to get The point of thinking is not to get the truth in mind, whether as it is or as it is not. Therefore, just as apparent commitments to unicorns can be explained away in terms of horses and horns, too has to be explained away in terms of the nature of sitting and its being different than the nature of standing. All right. In the previous sections, I laid out a platonic theory concerning non-modal truths and their truth makers, as well as how such a theory could handle falsehoods in an ontologically parsimonious way. If one, Scott is sitting, then Scott sitting is a truth because the nature of sitting is true of a particular region of space-time. A Platonist thinks that scientists discover these truth makers by reasoning about experiences of the truths. But in discovering these truth makers, scientists discover not only what the natures of things are, but also at the same time what the natures of things are not. That is, how the nature of difference relates to these natures to each other. For example. By reasoning about our experiences of the truths, we come to know what the nature of sitting is, what the nature of standing is, and by so doing, we come to understand that the nature of sitting is not the same thing as the nature of standing. To the extent we get this knowledge, to that extent we can differentiate sitting things from standing things. And further, it is also true that by reasoning about our experiences of the truths, we come to understand when these natures can and cannot be true of the same region of space-time. For example, though my sitting does rule out my standing at the same time, my sitting does not rule out my being white, my being thirsty, my being healthy, my being five foot eight, or my being a good place for viruses to, to live. So even though I could not be sitting and standing at the same time, I could be sitting and white at the same time and I could be sitting and thirsty at the same time. In fact, sitting and standing could both be true of me if we're talking about the complete four-dimensional space-time region that gets labeled Scott, the whole history. But if we have discovered that sitting and standing cannot both be true of me if we're talking about a sufficiently narrow time slice of that space-time region, uh, we also have discovered by reasoning about our experiences of the truth that flying can never be true of a human being such as myself. So then, in order to complete the platonic theory of truths and their truth makers, I need to turn now to these modal truths. What are they and what are their truth makers? Let's start again with our non-modal truth. What makes it true that Scott is sitting? The platonic answer is that the nature of sittings being true of this region of space time is what makes it true that Scott is sitting. But what about modal truths? Consider three, Scott could be standing. First, what is three? Though I am not standing, it does seem to be true that I could be. So, if three is a truth, what truth is it? We granted earlier that there is a truth, i.e., a thing, Scott sitting. But do we also need to admit that there's another thing besides Scott sitting, namely Scott's possibly standing? If we do, our ontology will seem to have, have to include far too many things, either a la David Lewis's concrete counterparts or a la Plantinga's abstract states of affairs. Okay, then what could these modal truths be? Since three cannot be the truth Scott's possibly standing because there is no form of possibly standing which would, if it it existed, make that truth true, the best way to explain apparent modal truths like three is to explain them away in terms of other things that do exist. Since the Platonist ontology includes non-modal spatiotemporal things and non-modal non-spatiotemporal things, only those things can be the things to which apparent modal (laughs) truths are reduced. If I say three to myself, then I suggest I will be putting my mind into a direct cognitive relation with almost all of the things true of this region of space-time and the form of standing. To explain the modal nature of three away, as opposed to the falsity we explained away before, we need to refer not to the form of difference in our explanation, but instead to something far more numerous, namely the non-modal relations the form of standing has with almost all of the forms true of this region of space-time. Let me explain. First a little more background uh, on Plato's philosophy of language. What do names pick out? Plato argues in the Cratylus that names are at best an outline of what we are talking about and never a substitute for the things themselves. Any true use of a name, including the uttering of a proper name, is a tool, a means, for getting our minds into a direct, two-place relation with the thing itself. So when we use a name, we do so transparently, that is, in order to have the real thing itself in mind and not opaquely, that is, merely to have simplified images of those real things in mind. According to Plato, then, names are elliptical for whatever is true of some region of space-time. If our audience is unaware of a proper name, for example, George Smith, then we use a definite description, so the one in the corner with the champagne glass. And since we do not have an infallible grasp of whatever is true of that region of space-time, we do not, according to Plato, have an infallible grasp of what we are referring to when we use names. We may have some educated guesses, some hypotheses, but none of these guesses are guaranteed to be true. So what does the proper name in 3 pick out? As I suggested, Scott picks out all of the things true of some region of space-time. What are some of the things true of this region of space-time? The nature of being human, the nature of being five foot eight, the nature of being white, the nature of sitting, the nature of being married, the nature of being north of the equator, and so on, are some of those things. There are many others. There are also many things that are not true of this region of space time. Some of them are the nature of being a giraffe, the nature of being six foot eight, the nature of being green, the nature of standing, the nature of being a sister, the nature of being south of the equator, and so forth. From a Platonic point of view, none of the things that are true of this region of space-time are essential to this region. That is, none of these things are ontologically more important to what this region is than any other, though I, and hopefully some others, for various practical reasons may care more about some of them as opposed to the rest. Ontologically speaking though, none of the things true of this region of space-time are any more fundamental to what Scott picks out than any of the others. But because we are humans, we tend to give proper names to things that are human. We could just as truly give proper names to white things, 5 foot 8 things, and triangular things. The only condition for a name being true of some region of space-time is that some form is true of it. Gerrymandered regions of space-time where there is no one form true of them all will not be possible to name truly. Why? Because they have no structure that could be expressed mathematically in terms of some relation between kinds of scale relative magnitudes. So, what are we trying to draw the hearers or readers attention to by uttering 3? We are trying to cause the hearer or reader to have almost all the things true of this region of space-time and the nature of standing. 3 is about the relations the form of standing has with all of the other forms true of that region of space-time minus 1, the form of sitting. If 3 is true, then three has to be explained away in terms of a plurality of non spatiotemporal truths, namely, all of the relations that hold between the form of standing and each of the forms true of that region of space-time, again, minus the form of sitting. Those are the truths to which three is reduced. So to what truth does three get our minds cognitively related? Not one, but many, i.e. all of those relations involving the form of standing. What makes each of those truths true? Whatever form explains the nature of their relation. For example, one of the truths to which 3 is reduced is the relation between the form of human beingness and the form of standing. Whatever the nature of that relation is, the form that is the nature of that kind of relation is true of their relation. What is this relation? I don't know. If scientists are currently working on discovering what it is to be human and what it is to be in an orthostatic state then they are working on the nature of the relation between those two things, that is what it is for human to be standing. And as I think that the forms are, the best, are best understood as expressible in terms of mathematical equations, I think that scientists are working to understand the mathematical equation which expresses the relation between the different scale relative parameters, that is the different kinds of magnitudes, which is the form of human beingness. Likewise, they are working to understand the mathematical equation which expresses the relation between different scale relative parameters, i.e., the different kinds of magnitudes, which is the form of standing. And so, since these are each mathematical equations, there will be some mathematical relation that relates these two equations. The nature of that relation, whatever it is, is the truth maker for the non-modal, non spatiotemporal temporal truth that the form of human beingness is related to the form of standing. Bob Batterman's The Devil in the Details, uh, his book from 2002, provides several excellent examples of how these mathematical operations are used in science to explain the relations between different kinds of phenomena, for example, phase transitions, rainbows, and renormalization groups. But we can instead use our simple example of speed to illustrate the idea easily enough. One kind of magnitude, which is related to speed, is length. This kind of magnitude is expressed mathematically as a scalar quantity delta d. Another kind of magnitude which is related to speed is duration. This kind of magnitude is expressed mathematically as a scalar quantity delta t. Speed is yet another kind of magnitude, the mathematical, relation of being a, a, the mathematical relation of being a ratio is the kind of relation that is true of the relation between the nature of speed and those two other kinds of magnitudes. This simple example is supposed to illustrate the idea of how all of the other kinds of magnitudes relate to each other no matter how simple or complex their mathematical relations are. So just as what makes it true that the form of being is different than the form of motion is that the form of difference is true of their relation, whatever relation the forms of human beingness and standing have with each other is made true by the form of that kind of mathematical relation. Modal truths like three then are really elliptical for a vast number of non-modal, non-spatio-temporal truths concerning their relations between all but one or a few, of the forms true of a region of space-time and a particular form. And the truth-makers for those truths are just the forms of the relevant kinds of relations involved in each of those non-modal, spatial truths. Now consider for, Scott could not be flying. What truth or truths does uttering for get us in mind? First, a Platonist should say, again, that Scott refers to all of the forms true of a particular region of space-time. And second, since this is a negative modal truth, only one or a very few of these truths are needed in order to explain away this modal truth in terms of something non-modal. In this particular case, the only one needed is the form of human beingness. Four is true then, so long as it is true that the form of flying is not related in the relevant way to the form of human beingness. What is the relevant way? Whatever way would be required for a relation between the form of human beingness and the form of flying that could explain a flying human. So there is a relevant kind of relation between the form of human beingness and the form of standing, such that it could be true that a human stands. And there is a relevant kind of relation between the form of human beingness and the form of sitting such that it could be true that a human sits. And there is a relevant kind of relation between the form of human beingness and the form of whiteness, such that there could be a human that is white, and so on. But there is no relevant kind of relation between the form of human beingness and the form of flying such that it could be true that a human flies. The form of flying then participates in the form of difference with respect to the form of the relevant kind of relation required to make such truths true. And what makes that true is that the form of flying is related in the relevant way only to kinds of relations that are different than the one that would be required. This too is discovered by scientists. As will be clear by now, one of the most important constraints on a Platonic metaphysics of modality is that it rejects Humean independence. To have Humean independence, one needs to deny that there are any necessary connections between independently existing entities. Since a Platonist should think that all of the forms are connected, and so necessarily connected, with some other form, what is possible and what is not possible is much more restricted than what is logically possible. Logical possibility, as it is usually discussed, assumes human independence and so flying humans would be logically possible. Since a Platonist denies independence, what is possible is restricted to what relations there are, in fact, between the forms. So if the form of human beingness is related in the relevant way only to forms other than the form of flying, there couldn't be any flying humans. On the other hand, if the form of human beingness and flying are in fact related in a relevant way, then depending upon the nature of that relation, there could be flying humans. For example, if the forms of human beings and flying are related to each other via the form of artificial flight, then there could be a flying, flying humans in that way, for example, by being in an airplane. The main point is that modal truths, no matter how expressed, are all reducible to non-modal truths concerning the relations of forms and the truth makers for those truths will be the forms of the relevant kinds of relations which relate those forms. This I think is the interweaving of the forms Plato talks about in the Sophist and other late dialogues. But What about other kinds of modal truths? The two kinds of modal truths that are most talked about nowadays have to do with aliens. Can the Platonic theory explain these as well? Suppose you took an inventory of every individual and every instantiated universal in our space-time continuum. It seems true that five, there could have been one more individual than there was, for example, I could have had a brother, and likewise six, there could have been one more universal instantiated than there was, for example, Hume's missing shade of blue. Since both five and six have as their subject the entire space-time continuum, every instantiated form is the subject of both of the sentences. With respect to five, a Platonist has to say that something has to say something very similar to the explanation of three above applies. For example, all of the forms that were true of the region of space-time when I was conceived minus one, namely the form of singletonhood, are related in the relevant ways to the form of twinning. That set of relations is just one of the many sets of relations that are what five is. And six just says that there exists some form which is not true of any relation of space-time, is related to some other forms which are true of some region of space-time. In other words, even if nothing in the entire history of our space-time continuum ever reflected electromagnetic waves that were 465 nanometers apart, there exists the nature of that electromagnetic wavelength and its form is related in the relevant way to some of the forms that are true of, the, of some region of space-time. All right, some comparisons. The nice thing about Plato's theory concerning the metaphysics of modality is that it is naturalistic, parsimonious, and does not need fictionalism. Let me take these in in order. Plato's theory is naturalistic because it explains modal truths by means of non-modal primitives. In other words, if a theory commits itself to modality as a primitive, then modal truths cannot be explained away in terms of anything non-modal. Since all of our modal truths are explained in this Platonic theory in terms of the forms and their relations that is, not how the forms can or cannot relate, but how they do in fact relate with each other, the metaphysical commitments of this platonic theory are only to non-modal things that actually are, and not to brutally modal things. Moreover, since the best theory of naturalism is, in my view, the view which requires one's ontological commitments to be no more than what science requires, and the Platonist's commitment to the existence of forms is based upon his or her view that science is not possible unless such things exist, then believing in forms is naturalistic. This Platonic theory is also more more parsimonious, let us first take up other actualist theories of modality. Plantinga, Adams, and Stallnaker do, like Plato, arguably commit themselves to non-spatio-temporal existing entities in addition to spatio-temporal ones, but as far as I can tell they commit themselves to too many of them. So though Plantinga, Adams, and Stallnaker all admit into their ontology universals and particulars, they clutter up their ontology with other non-spatio-temporal entities which are unnecessary. Planiga would explain three with abstract things he calls non-obtaining states of affairs, and he explains five with abstract things he calls hexades. Adams explains three with abstract sets of propositions, and Stalniker explains three with additional properties which are the way the world could have been, that is, uh, they could have been instantiated, but they were not. But if we explain all of 1 through 6 solely by means of the forms and their relations, we do not need, in addition to those entities, other abstract entities, then I would count this Platonic view as more parsimonious than theirs. Of course, we lose some things with this Platonic theory, which Planigus' theory has, namely spatiotemporal essentialism. That is, Plantinga thinks that every possible individual spatiotemporal thing has a non-spatiotemporal essence, which he calls the hexade. On the Platonic view I have been advocating here, we do not get spatiotemporal things having essences. Since believing in such things seems to me to be unnecessary for science, I am sanguine to give those up. But due to limitations of time, I will have to merely note that position and not argue for it. With respect to David Lewis's theory, which only commits itself to one kind of entity, namely spatiotemporal ones, and which has modal truths such as three and five grounded in real spatiotemporal entities existing in space-time worlds other than this one, I do not think that those entities can explain why those modal truths are true. To see this, let us first consider, uh, according to Lewis, let's first consider, according to Lewis, what makes non-modal truths true. He would say that my being in the class of sitting things makes one true. However, my being in the class of sitting things is not explanatory, it is just descriptive. In other words, we want to know why being in that class makes it true that I am sitting. The problem for Lewis is that he does not believe in the existence of non-spatio-temporal things. So a class of things is just the things themselves. There isn't an additional thing such as the nature of sitting, which explains why the things that are in the class of sitting things are in that class. For another example, it is because the thing reflects electromagnetic waves that are 500 nanometers apart that it is in the class of green things. Having reflected electromagnetic wavelengths of that magnitude is what makes the thing green. Moreover, if all we can talk about are the spatiotemporal things themselves, then Lewis has the same problem all nominalists have. This sitting thing is also a human thing and is also a five foot eight thing, and so on and so forth. In virtue of what am I a sitting thing as opposed to a five foot eight thing? That I am in both of those classes and those classes are different from each other. But if that is the best we can say, then saying that doesn't explain why those truths are true, it just describes it. So though Lewis has one less kind of entity than a Platonist does, i.e. he only believes in spatiotemporal entities, whereas a Platonist believes in both spatiotemporal and non-spatiotemporal entities, the extra kind of entity is needed if we want to get the benefit of scientific explanations. For modal truths like three, Scott could be standing. Lewis thinks that what makes three true is that I have a counterpart in some other possible world who is standing. But the same problem remains. The so-called explanation does not explain why three is true. That is, why is what my counterpart is doing make three true? I can see how my counterpart standing is good evidence that I could be standing, but not how my counterpart standing explains how I could be standing. If that is right, then again, though a platonic ontology is larger than Lewis's, the benefit of being able to have scientific explanations is worth the cost. With respect to Gideon Rosen's fictionalism concerning modality, I would argue that it is because that I would argue that because it is by design, uh, I'm sorry, I would argue that because it by design only gives the appearance of an explanation of the truth makers for modal truths and not a real explanation, fictionalism is not really an explanation of modal truths at all, but something else altogether. Since it is something else altogether, I do not need to defend Plato's explanation as being better explanation since fictionalism itself isn't even an explanation. To conclude, thank you for your patience. All statements about possibilities are explained in terms of relations between the forms. There is no need to postulate other spatiotemporal worlds a la Lewis, or non spatiotemporal non obtaining states of affairs, worlds, stories, and the like a la resort or resort to sleight of hand via fictionalism a la Rosen. The forms explain why something is the way that it is, and the relations between the forms explain why something could have been some other way in the past or present and help us to predict what it could be in the future. The forms, then, are what provide the metaphysical foundation for all truths. Thank you. Thank you.